Welcome to the Encourageous Podcast. My name is Angel Clark, and I'll be your host. Everyone goes through difficult things in life, but it takes a special type of person to use their pain to help others. That's exactly the kind of people you're going to hear from here on Encourageous. Each episode will tell the story of someone who not only survived their struggle, but is thriving. Join us for vulnerable, firsthand testimonies that will inspire you to press on. Get ready to be encouraged. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning into the Encourageous podcast today. Um, I hope you all have been doing well in this crazy thing that we have been calling 2020. You know, it's definitely been a very strange season, and we all of us have kind of had to pivot and turn and do things differently than we do. Um, really, the whole purpose of this podcast is just to put some encouragement and positivity into the world with so much vision and hatred going on. So if you guys don't mind, either like or subscribe or rate whatever option your platform gives you that will help get out some encouragement to, you know, hopefully brighten the world up a little bit. Um, and today I actually have two guests with me and I'm very, very excited. They are Matt and Bobby Jean. So if you guys can go ahead and just tell us a little, little bit about who you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. Hi guys. I'm Bobby Jean. And I'm Matt. We, uh, yeah, we've been married for 10 years now. We met when we were probably 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so we've known each other a long time and I, I had a crush on her from day one. And, and we started dating when we were 18. Yep. We went on our first date. And that night I was like, yeah, I want to marry this girl. She's incredible. Oh, wow. And, you knew right away. And then like three months later, I was like, man, I still want to marry her. So I started looking at rings and then we got engaged. And yeah, it's been an awesome journey. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and how, did you, how did you feel? Were you the same kind of love at first sight or did it take you a little longer? Um, I didn't think he was an option because I didn't think he liked me so I <laughs> so I didn't even entertain it until he actually like asked me out and I was like yes yeah <laughs> so that was just me being insecure again <laughs> oh yeah our yeah our personalities are definitely they balance each other like I'm way more extrovert she's super introvert and mm. so she always assumes like oh, they're just calling us to hang out because they feel bad for us. I'm like, why would somebody call you to hang out? Because they feel, <laughs> she, she like always is like, doesn't want to inconvenience anybody, doesn't want to, yeah, never assume anything. Because yep. she, she has an awesome heart and just wants to please people and love people. I'm a work in progress. <laughs> you know what, we all are, we all are. Um, and that actually kind of um, segues into our next topic here was, so I remember when I, I called you guys to ask for this interview, Matt was like, yeah, wait a second. Um, how do we know each other? And I'm like, oh yeah, we don't. Like, I just totally. Um, I worked with you guys' sister-in-law um, at a restaurant, and I remember a few years back, she was like devastated, and she had to leave work, and like she was, you know, kind of distraught. And so everybody asked what happened, and that's where she said that like Matt, you had, you know, you were. Um, I don't know if you call it an accident, but you you were, you know, involved in something, and it was very serious, and you were injured. Um, and so I just kind of remember. I was there when it happened, but I didn't really know any of the details and stuff. So we're actually technically meeting for the first time right now on Zoom. So hi guys, nice to meet you. <laughs> but so I'm actually really excited to kind of hear what what exactly you know took place that day and how your life has kind of changed from that pivotal moment. 
-hmm. Yeah, so when, when, I mean, yeah, if we start there, so I was uh, kind of in a transition in my career. Like I had been uh, a wake skater, so an athlete for about eight years, and then had been transitioning into full-time ministry and kind of walked out of the peak of my career to go into um, go to school for theology. And I was actually helping trim trees at a church, like just two years after graduation. And I was helping trim trees and we didn't realize that linemen and tree trimmers, arborists use fiberglass insulated buckets. And we, I got up in like a regular metal high reach to reach these branches and the main power line that powered like the whole block, a big three phase commercial line arced over and I got 21,000 volts to ground run through my body. So they said at a minimum, it was the equivalent to being hooked up to six electric chairs and turning them all on. There wasn't even a survivor rate. There's like arc flash survivor rates where like it, let's say it like hits a transformer and somebody's standing close and it like kind of blows them off. But that more burns you from the outside in like a firewood, whereas this actually like conducted through me. So they didn't really have a survivor rate. They, um, and that would have been, you know, Lauren was at work and I went to a coma pretty much immediately. So I don't remember any of that, but they were really honest with Bobby Jean and, you know, Lauren and Steele and my parents and their parents and our whole family that, you know, I had all this electricity go through my body. My muscles were dying at a really incredible rate. I had fourth and fifth degree burns in my chest and arms and neck. And um, what that means is, because most people here have third degree burns where it burns through your skin. But fourth degree is where it burns through the muscle tissue, and then fifth is when it starts burning bone. And even in isolated areas, fifth degree burns are usually fatal because uh, once it burns deep enough to, to burn through bone, it destroys all the muscles and cells between the skin and that bone. So when your blood flows through those dead muscles, it basically acts like a toxic filter, and it fills your kidneys and heart with poison. You know, it, 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 your body's killing itself, basically. So... Bobby Jean was at the scene of the, the accident. You can kind of tell what that was like and what the medics did. Yeah, they called me out there and I thought he had passed out from heat exhaustion. It was in June in Florida and he was, you know, working outside. So he was passed out when I saw him up in the, in the bucket and I thought it was heat exhaustion. So I was yelling up to him. And then all of a sudden he started like flailing, like all over, just like something had taken over his body and he was just flailing all over. And we saw just like deep slashes through his whole body. Um, and that's when I ran inside, I dialed 911 and I was frantic and I was freaking out and they couldn't get him down. The bucket had been zapped, so it was not responding correctly. He was about to fall out multiple times. And so somebody was trying to climb up to get him. Like it was just chaos. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I was four months pregnant with our first son. And um, so I just kept screaming, I can't be a single mom. He's got to be okay. I can't do this. I can't do this. Finally, they got him down and they wouldn't let me see him because it was awful. It was something out of a horror movie, you know? And they were like, no, Bobby, it's too bad. You can't. And so they were physically holding me back. And finally, I just said, hey, this is not good. If I need to say bye, I need to go say bye right now and like kind of push past them. I, you know, I kind of said goodbye and he was still just flailing everywhere. And uh, the ambulance came and we rode to the hospital and it was not good. And so they had to like take me and put me in this other room because I couldn't breathe. And uh, they were trying to get me to calm down. That was, that was um, 
at the beginning and then it was like six hours before we heard anything because he was in surgery and I was just like I would go through like moments of hysteria where I was like okay just bawling my eyes out to then okay you know just calm down like you don't know anything yet and then they finally took me to the ER because they were so worried about the baby because mm. I wasn't breathing and um so then I was in the ER for a while too and uh then finally six hours later we got news that he was still alive and I I was so happy yeah. <laughs> believe it yeah they they I mean when I got to the hospital they said it was a miracle that I even made it to the hospital and they um you, you know that the basically like she said it looked like a horror movie because it was all the skin had burned off and then it kind of cauterized the wounds the burn so it's like you could see my whole left rib cage my sternum my clavicle bone were just exposed and then everything else was just muscles hanging out um that were left there was no skin at all she said it was just like black charcoal looked like meat on a barbecue grill even like a couple days later you know i was in in a coma and all the electricity, the exit wounds were in the top of my head. There's like a bald spot here and then another one in the back. So they said all the electricity flowed through his body and blew through the top of his head, right through his brain. So even if he wakes up, there's there's no brain activity. He's, wow. you know, he's not going to be mad. He's cognitively not going to be there. And, you know, the, it, it was a long process. It was, you know, they were sure that there was no brain activity. And uh, when I woke up and could actually communicate, they were amazed. We had a surgery scheduled for 9 a.m. one morning to amputate both my arms at the shoulders because they had turned, my arms had turned completely black and there was just no circulation and tons of swelling and tons of blood clots. And they'd wanted to take my arms off the first day I went in and my family wouldn't sign off on it yet. And finally they're like, look, his, his arms are literally gonna kill him. So we're gonna, it's not your decision anymore. So they scheduled the surgery and my parents just kept pleading like is there any way is there any other option and finally late at night before the sur the, the night before the surgery they said well we we put a call into dr llewellyn and i always like to name him by name because i owe that guy <laughs> he came in in the middle of the night and said well if they're taking him off let me try this and it was a really aggressive kind of hail mary surgery that was sort of experimental you know we had no idea if it would work there's not a lot of proof of concept but um, he did a really deep fasciotomy where he made hundreds of lacerations up and down my arms and basically let me bleed out on the table while he pumped new blood into my central line and just basically pumped new blood in my body because ORMC is a level one trauma center. They have a blood bank and, and let me bleed out for hours and it relieved the swelling and brought movement and circulation and brought life back in my arms. And it's amazing because even a year later, I went back to him and the only thing that was completely compromised, my left wrist um, was just kind of limp into my side. It was kind of like a prosthetic hand that didn't do much. He said, you know, I, you have a little bit of finger movement. I could just barely wiggle my fingers. He said, I think the finger flexors are there, but if we fuse your wrist, I think it'll, the, the, the fingers will come back. So we're putting a plate from the top of my hand, basically about halfway up my arm um to make my wrist so it doesn't move anymore it's fixed like this but but the, but it works now i went in to, to the consultation and i started kind of showing him my wrist and showing him the issues and where the pain was and what was going on and and he just kind of stopped me and, and he started to tear up and he's like matt he's like when i saved your arms that day that was an aggressive surgery i cut through tendons and muscle flexors and he said i saved your arms in a way that 
almost like you'd say someone's legs in a wheelchair. He said, I knew you'd have limited or no use of a lot of the function in your arms for the rest of your life. And he said, I, I can't explain why you can move your arms and just the dexterity and, and the strength that you have. And so it's, there's so much that we can credit the doctors to, but also God just had such a big role in it. I mean, it wasn't like, okay, well, they thought this one thing and they're wrong, but there was time and time again where these incredible doctors were sure of things that, that didn't happen. Mm. Wow. That's crazy. I just can't even like, I'm trying to wrap my head around all of this. Like it's definitely, there's literally, um, I have a friend who her brother's a pastor, her brother-in-law's a pastor. She ministers, like she's got all kinds of ministers around her. And one thing she said that was so cool was that people can explain things, you know, if you talk about like trying to explain Christianity to someone, they can explain away everything like, Oh, creation's not real. You know, evolution is real. So, but the one thing they cannot take away from you is your experience with God. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's exactly what you're embodying is the doctors can literally be like, there is no human physical explanation for why you're here, literally. So that, that just reminded me of that is no one can ever take away from you your testimony, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's so true. And it's funny. Cause like when you go through something, it's, I, I like, you could almost second guess it where I'm like, man, it was horrible to us, but people go through terrible stuff every day. And, you know, so in the grand scheme of things, how bad was it? But then about a year out of the hospital, OMC called me and said, hey, we have a basically a black tie fundraising dinner that we do with wealthy people in Orlando. And, you know, we usually try to feature one patient story that we know would not be here if we didn't have a level one trauma center. And when we looked over all our patients last year and a half, um, your name kept coming back. And I'm like, wait a minute you guys have like 200,000 patients in your ER a year and you're telling me like, I'm the worst. Like that's not really the prize you want. <laughs> and, and, um, I mean, it's been a super long journey. It's been over 70 operations in six wow. years, but so much of it is watching how God has worked. And, yeah. and, you know, when you talk about the story aspect, story is probably the single thing that I'm most passionate about. Like if, if you said, what, what do you care most about in this world? It's story. When we look at Jesus, he communicated through parables, through short stories. When we look at the way the Bible was handed down through generations, it was the stories were told to their children, to their children. Yep. To their, I mean, that's how we relate to people. We, we're narrative. That's how our, our brain works. And we tell ourselves stories and sometimes they're not true. Sometimes they could be lies. They could be things that, you know, I'm, I'm never good enough. I'm not going to make it. And those narratives in our life take root and you know it can make or break us and so much of what i'm passionate about about sharing my story is to break through some of those walls and those lies that that we tell ourselves um that i'm not good enough that i'm not going to get better and and when I, when i looked at our story it was um kind of one of even if the worst happens it's not a prosperity gospel of okay well we're going to love Jesus and everything is going to be okay. Like, no, it might not be. I woke up and was told it's a miracle. You've lived long enough to wake up, but your muscles are dying at an incredible rate. We're doing surgeries every day to remove dead muscle tissue. And at some point in the next few hours or a few days, you're going to move towards what's called septic and you'll have about four to six hours to live. So that was kind of a sobering moment of like, oh, well, nice to meet you, doc. Like anything else? Like, And I did. I prepared my living will. I registered with the state. Um, I planned my whole funeral because I didn't want Bobby to have to do that. And it was this moment of it. It wasn't this like, 
this bartering with God of like, oh, if you save me, then I'll serve you. It was like, no, no, because of what you've already done for me, I'll serve you. That if you never do another thing for me, I owe you the rest of my life. Whether that's five more hours or 50 more years, I'm going to be fully me till the end. And at, at the end of it is that the spoiler alert to scripture, it's not that we get a prosperity gospel here on earth that we turn to Jesus and things get easy, but we have prosperity eternally that if we fight the good fight, if we endure, if we pick up our cross daily, if we choose to let him walk through the challenges with us, like he's asking to, he's saying, I'm standing at the door knocking. I want to walk through this with you. If we choose to open that door and say, Hey, I don't understand this. I don't know where this ends, but I, I want you on this journey with me, God. And I know you want to be here with me that, that we do go to a place with no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears uh, and no more death. And, so that was kind of it is like, it's like, God, no matter what you do, you've given me more than I ever deserved that I've lived an awesome life so far. And, and this is just one part of my life eternally. Yeah. And that's actually, um, I love the way you phrase that because unfortunately, you know, we all know people who've been through difficult things and I've been through things myself that have been really hard, but I have a daughter who passed away from cancer. And she was treated at Arnold Palmer and Winnie Palmer, like right across from where you guys were. You know, that was my daughter who passed away. And then I have a family member who her daughter also passed away, but from suicide. So it's obviously not the same situation. But if you boil it down to losing a child, we both lost a child. And I see the way that this person, this person is angry and bitter and blaming everyone. And me, I have my moments. But essentially, I mean, I've shared my testimony time and time again. And the whole reason I started this podcast was just to be able to, you know, get people's stories out. And so, yes, there is something to be said about, you know, taking your pain and using it for good. But unfortunately, not everybody does that. So in your situation, you could have easily been like turning away from God. So the fact that you turned to God, and that's what I feel like I did was I look back in my Bible of, you know, when my daughter was sick and going through her treatments and all that. And I put the date every time I highlight a scripture, I put the date beside it. And it's like that time period was like day after day, just scripture, scripture, scripture. Mm-hmm. And I look at my other person and that's not what she did. You know, she kind of turned away. So I, I do think, think there's some power in like, you know, you have to choose to let it be used for good. It's not like an automatic, you know, it's definitely a, God gives us free will. So even though you're saying like, you know, oh, well, I didn't have a choice, but really you did. So, you know, that just gives a testament to your relationship with God and like kind of a, a beautiful picture of just a person who lives out thankfulness and gratefulness and just all these things. Because it could have, you could have obviously went the other way. You know, hearing your story, like I would have never known that about you. And wow. like my company is called Beyond the Burn. And it's off this idea that we all have burns. We all have struggles and my scars are right here and you can see them right over Zoom. And your scars are internal, but sometimes the internal ones are way deeper. Like, I can't, as a parent, I could, I can't imagine what you've gone through. And, and I don't want to pretend to say, oh, I know what it's like. No, 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 I don't know what it's like. And what I do know is I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to, to be uncertain about tomorrow. You know, when, when you say you have your moments, I think of when we lose somebody, we tend to, try to say oh well you know time will heal and but at some point sometimes time doesn't heal everything in the fact of when you talk about your daughter or think about your daughter in those moments 
there's memories that are just so good. And it's sometimes just, you want to know who she'd be now. You want to interact with her. And it's like, that could hurt for the next 80 years. That's not a bad thing. Like pain isn't bad. And we often make it like it's bad. You know, pain and suffering, we actually use them like that. Like, oh, this person's going through pain and suffering. But I hate that because they're different. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And pain is a thing that happens in our life to us. And suffering is when those things break us. And you may always have moments of pain when you talk about your daughter. And that's not a bad thing because that shows how special she was to you, how much she means that you're doing this podcast because of what you went through with her. So, you know, you've chose not to suffer because of it. You chose to say, hey, this hurts. Mm. But this Bible that I believe in doesn't promise me a pain-free life. It actually promised me in this world, you will face trouble, not you might or you could, but take part, I've overcome the world. So you go through that pain and then you choose not to suffer. You choose not to let it break you, but that doesn't make it not hurt. And separating that is so important because people like your other friend you're talking about, we, we go through pain and we group it together with, well, I'm going through pain. It must be God is against me. It must be, he's not real. It must be this person's fault or that person. And we're just trying to rationalize our pain rather than be more self-aware of it. Hey, pain's not bad. Jesus, one of the most powerful verses in all of scripture, John, uh, you know, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And it's like the, the creator of the universe weeps. And, and we, we look at it and it's like, did he suddenly not know that he could bring Lazarus back from the dead? Like Lazarus dies he comes into town. They're like, if you'd just been here, you could have saved him. And there's such deep pain and suffering going on with the people he cares so much about that in that moment, he knows the truth is he can raise them from the dead. He knows the truth is they're going to be reunited. He knows one day they'll all be reunited in heaven. But that doesn't change the fact that in that moment, there's real emotion and real pain. And he's watching the people around him go through tremendous amounts of that. And he can be present with them. And the creator of the universe weeps and and man, we can learn so much from that of, you know, not trying to cover up our pain, not trying to act like it's not there, but recognizing it's there and then trusting the truth and moving forward. Yeah. And- what was your daughter's name? Kylie. Kylie. Mm-hmm. And now look at what you're able to do on Kylie's behalf. You're able to help so many other people and it didn't stop with her. Her life is now affecting others because you're allowing it to. And that's, that's all we really can do because we're not in control, but we can take the things that we've learned and walk alongside other people. I've heard it said kind of like what you were saying, but life with God is not easier, but it's better. There is nothing that's easier about life with God from a tangible aspect of what happens in our lives, but he walks it with us. So we have hope. We know we're loved in the midst of all of it. We know that this is not all we get. We know that we get to see Kylie again. We know these things. And so that's what Jesus offers. And people are always like, well, what is Jesus? Like the name Jesus, what does that mean? And it's like, no, it's everything about what he shows us in his promises. Like, I will give you peace. I will give you these things if you walk with me. And then in the end, God wins and we know what it all looks like. Yeah, because we don't want to believe that we have a prosperity gospel mindset. But people do because they'll say, man, Matt, you were an athlete living what might be considered a selfish life and you walked away from that to go into ministry and that's when you have this horrible accident or, you know, you and your husband are Christians and then why would you lose a daughter? That's not fair. 
And it's like, look, if we amplify that theology on, on bigger, you know, to kind of expose it for what it is, well, then all the Christians should live long and prosper and all the atheists would mm. die cancer or car wrecks or we're not promised special treatment from the challenges of this world. But what we're promised is that we can learn to find joy and peace and contentment in the midst of those things. One thing, like when I look at what you've done with it is my scars definitely open doors. Like I can, I can speak into people's lives that a lot of people can't. I could go into a spinal injury ward. I can go into, and people that would have never gave me the time of day and be like, okay, this is just some privileged dude who got to live a cushy life as an athlete now are like, oh wow, 70 operations. He's been through some stuff. Maybe I'll listen. The one reoccurring theme, whether it's loss, injury, divorce, whatever it is, is the why. Mm. And, and the why is such, I, the why question is such a paralyzing question. And then Christians say things like, well, everything happens for a reason, which we don't have a verse for that. Like that's one of the most misquoted parts of scripture. Like sometimes the why is not that great. You know, sometimes the why is somebody looked down to send a text message and they went over the yellow line and killed your loved one. Why never brings healing is what I've realized. Even if like your friend who's angry, even if the people who she's mad at, if they came on their hands and knees and said, I'm sorry, you're right. It's my fault. They commit suicide because of me. It doesn't bring them back. Why never brings healing, but only asking what's next. And what's next is what I believe goes back to story. How do we use what we've gone through to have community and what's amazing is when we start to talk about it because the world doesn't encourage that you know to to be vulnerable to be it's almost like a sign of weakness Mm -hmm. and it's like you know but when we start to share our stories and start to process and say look I don't know why this happened I don't know why I got electrocuted was it that the enemy was trying to kill me and take me out of ministry because I was entering ministry was it just straight science that you get a metal bucket a certain way from a power line that's going to arc over, like whatever the reason is neither here nor there, I got electrocuted. So for me, it was, okay, well, what's next? What's next is I'm a broken person on a couch being told I should basically sit on disability and collect a welfare check pretty much. And that's my life. And I said, man, I could be in pain on a couch or I could be in pain on stage. I could share my story. And what I, what's amazing is when I start to share, people say, man, just like you, I have internal stuff. I, I lost a child. I went through this. I went through that. And you see people take a step towards healing. It, it's crazy how many times I'll speak and some lady walks up afterward and says, hey, I never told anyone this, but I was sexually abused as a child. Wow. Maybe, maybe it's time I take a step towards healing. And Broken people gravitate towards broken people. And what's incredible is when we let go of the why. When you say, I don't know why this happened, but if I just sit here and think about it, I'm just going to be angry and bitter and depressed. I don't know why it happened, but I know what I can do from here. We almost get a why. Because it's like, you don't know why your daughter got cancer, but you've said what's next. And you've started to journey to find other people who have stories, who've gone through trauma, who've gone through pain. And now you've almost got meaning in it. And, and it's like, we, we let go of the why and then we get a why. And, and when you talked about like the choices that we have and being active versus passive, like I always think of that as this kind of theory I've developed, I call it the neutral illusion. It's this illusion that we live in a world where our economy, our government, our bodies, our lifestyle, everything goes in ebbs and flows and is super volatile. Yep. But when we ask each other how we've been and I'm like, how you been? It's like, um, 
I'm making ends meet or I'm getting by. And we use words that are basically like saying, okay, well, I'm not really growing, but I'm not really failing. I'm, I'm maintaining a neutral, steady beacon. And to think that in the most volatile world, we could be the one steady neutral. It's an illusion. It doesn't exist. It's like my home right now. We're sitting in our home doing the Zoom call. Yeah, I love our house. It, it looks pretty on the inside and outside, I think. But the reality is, if we cut the power and left for 10 years, we'd come back, especially in Florida, and we'd <laughs> probably have the roof caved in from wind damage or hurricanes. We'd have tons of bugs and mold and moisture. Our home is literally falling apart before our eyes, but the process is too slow to see. Without constant renovation and growth, there's no neutral. We're either growing or we're dying. And the sad thing is the process is too slow to see, and the same thing happens in our lives. And, and we make compromises and we make we treat people differently. And before we know it, 10 years go by and we look in the mirror and we don't recognize who's staring back at us. And because, you know, we think we've been kind of maintaining, but we've been dying. And all of a sudden, man, we're, we're making decisions and we're treating people in ways that, you know, young, I'm going to go after the world, us would hate who's looking back. And we don't know how we got there. So, so much of what I believe in life is is waking up daily and saying, how am I going to be better today than I was yesterday? Who am I going to learn from? Who am I going to lead? Who am I going to pour into? And am I better today than I was yesterday? Because if I'm not growing, I am dying. That's good. That's definitely, I've, I've heard that quote. I don't remember who said it, but I have heard that before. Um, so in your, you know, as we've kind of been talking, were there maybe some low points in your journey where you started to kind of believe you know, oh, I may never walk, or this may not be the life that I thought I was going to have. Did you ever um, kind of have those difficult moments? And if you did, what what got you through them? I think, again, it's recognizing that pain and vulnerability can be healthy. There's definitely, there. Were, I mean, I went from being a professional athlete to not able to use the restroom without my wife's help, not able to open a water bottle. You feel like you're this, like, provider, protector of your home to you know, I'm as much or more of a burden than our newborn child. And those moments are not easy. It's, it's, those are where the lies can creep in of I'm not good enough. I'm, I'm not accepted. I'm not, you know, who I was, I can't. And when those creep in, it's just really just recognizing it for what it is of, man, I, I can mourn what I've lost. Like I'm not that person anymore. And a big step towards healing is accepting where you are. You know, Jesus, when he, he goes up to the crippled guy at the pool and he says, do you want to get well? And the guy says, well, every time the water swirled, there's nobody to help me in. And then somebody beats me and I can't. And he starts telling Jesus all the reasons that he's not well. But that wasn't the question. It's do you want to get well? And Jesus can make you well. That's a given. So, it, but do you want to? So when we're in those, I guess, when we're in those moments of, there were those moments for me of this is why I'm here. This is my situation. And the first step is accepting where you are and, and saying, okay, instead of comparing myself to the old me and saying, well, I used to be this, I used to do this. It, I'm not that guy anymore. I can't open a water bottle. I'm not somebody that can use the rest at that point. You know, I, I'm not somebody who is very strong, but maybe I could relate to people in ways I couldn't. Maybe I have time to pour into people that I didn't have because I'm sitting on the couch for months on end recovering. And I'm not the other person, but let me start exploring who this new person is. And, and it's okay to mourn that. So for me, there were moments of 
deep, not sorrow, but yeah, deep mourning of, of what I have lost. Mm -hmm. uh, but then recognizing that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. It's just a new chapter and it's just yeah. a new person. And then Bobby Jean, um, so I, I just forgot about it for a second until he said my newborn child, you had to, you were still pregnant when all this happened and you had to give birth. And can you kind of talk about, you know, what it was like to maybe try to be there for your husband? Like was Matt able to come see the baby be born and all that kind of, I can't even imagine that time in your life must just have been a mental blur. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think a level of exhaustion existed. <laughs> But he was released in September and then back and forth in and out of surgeries. And our son was born in January. So it was a lot. Um, and then thankfully he was able to be there for justice being born and everything. And um, we got to actually enjoy that moment. And then he did go back into surgeries pretty quickly after that. So it was definitely more than we had even adjusted to already because it was three hour burn dressing changes for him in the morning and then I'd bathe him and then in the evening do another one and so it was just there were so many tasks at hand and then fighting with insurance companies and all the other things that I would do when he was taking a nap so it was non-stop and then adding a newborn I mean I won't lie to you it was hard it was definitely a time of me dying to self and in that time I feel like it grows you, you know, how can it not? And also for Matt and I, he was still selfless in a lot of ways, even in his recovery. He was not mean to me when I wasn't doing it right and it was hurting him or what, like he was honest, but he was not mean. And so it was, I was able to be able to take care of him without it being a bitter experience. The things that he was focusing on, the growth that he was focusing on, even in the midst of the worst, made it to where I was able she still lovingly took care of him as opposed to absolutely miserable, you're a mean person type of thing. So I, I really appreciated that about him. There was one particular time I can remember in the hospital that was hard. They were saying he was going septic, which was uh, when your blood is, has an infection and they're, they're not really able to stop it. And so they were trying their best. And it was at night, I remember calling one of my friend's moms who's a nurse and just saying please explain this to me because they're all working on him and it's too like I can't get answers can you explain it to me and it wasn't good he was starting to like speak mumble jumbled and he had a super high fever and he was hallucinating and all this stuff and I was like okay this could be it after we've already we thought yeah. we were past the hard part and now you know he had been normal this morning and now he might be gone tomorrow morning and that particular night I remember I just felt like okay, I'm falling, like I can't find any ground underneath me. And um, so I finally, I had to like kind of step back and say, okay, you know, I don't like, I can't keep falling like this in my mind where I'm just like sinking into this tunnel. And so it kind of hit me. I was like, okay, even if the worst of the worst happens and Matt doesn't make it, God has not changed. God is still God. Matt gets to go be with God. I don't have to worry about him. And God still loves me and loves our baby. And I know in the end, it'll all be okay. Like, so it kind of just gave me that perspective to say, all right, I'm not falling anymore. I know where the baseline is. And so that was one of the, one of the hardest moments. That's really, I mean, there were a lot of hard moments, but that was a really particular one where I was just like, okay, I have to find the floor underneath me. And the floor yeah. was, okay, God is still God, even if Matt is not here. 
Yeah, that was a really hard night. So there's this product called Integra. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's basically like, it's used for really deep burns where you can't put skin grafts on top of like muscle tissue and bone. So you have to put this Integra layer first and then you skin graft over the Integra. But the Integra is a lab made product that's basically like, almost like saran wrap, let's say. So think of if you put like plastic over like meat, bacteria is gonna start to grow right away. Like with Integra, if you like Google about it, you'll see that the average take rate is like 50%. So if they put it on this much of your arm, it's right at the night, like the, the night, it's exactly like the beginning of day 12, the night of the 11th, the day of the 12th. And they told us that, they're like, that's kind of that tipping point of it either gets infected or it takes, and so I had Integra all over my body and they'd said like the issue is even at best, if he has half of it take, if half of this Integra fails, which is half his chest and one whole arm, that's so much infection that's going to set in quickly that we probably can't take it off fast enough. He's probably going to die. So that was what was scary. Is like it was necessary. So they put the Integra on. And at that point, I had kind of gone through the emotions, like she said, of, okay, I, I don't think I'm going to die. Like obviously you anything could happen, but... I was talking, I was communicating. I still had some tubes in, but I was, I was like drinking some liquids and stuff. So I felt like I was making ground. Mm -hmm. And then it was the 11th night after I got the Integra on. And even though they had warned us that, yeah, it could be bad. I just, you, you kind of think, okay, that's worst case scenario, but really it was a very high probability. And one of my nurses came in, Adriana, and she like started to look at my chart and she was like, oh no. And she like ran out of the room. And then a bunch of doctors came back in, like three doctors and like two nurses with her. And they're all like talking back and forth about like, okay, we're gonna do this. We're gonna put this in the IV. We're gonna monitor this and just stuff I couldn't really understand. And then they started to leave. And I was like, wait, Dr. Smith, am I gonna die? Mm. And he goes, well, no, in a few hours. And he walked out. And it was like, that night was so hard because it was, in my mind, I had already made it and we'd gone through the emotions of preparing for my funeral and my living will and thinking we'd made it. And then you're like reliving like, oh, I'm not there yet. And then my fever just continued to go up and that was a really, really rough night. Well, geez, I'm kind of mad at that doctor. Like, why did he say that? His bedside <laughs> manner was not, <laughs> but he was a good surgeon. So. He's a really good surgeon. He's who you want working on you. Yeah. So I don't think we actually said this already, but your recovery process, I know you said you had like 70 surgeries. How long was that? It's been a process. So a year ago, last September was my last surgery. And it happened um, in 2014. It happened in 2014. So it was six years of surgeries, pretty much five years of surgeries. And it was like, it's funny because when I went to school for theology, I told all my friends, like, I was never going to be a pastor or speak. Like, I wanted to go work probably as a missionary or something and go... I wanted to be a guy who worked in the background. I, I was terrified of public speaking. And I always told my friends my last message would be in my last preaching class. And of course, then I go to the hospital and people are like, it was actually like Justin Miller from real life was like, hey, I'm doing a message on perseverance. Come, you know, let me interview you. And I like was wrapped up like a mummy and went up and just answered like, you know, the last 10 minutes of his message. And then that led to like a youth group and then you know, a camp and a few camps and businesses. And before I knew it, I was speaking all over. I was like, oh man, I guess I need to start. I guess this is what I do now. I never wanted to do that. But that process was all during my surgeries. Like I was literally scheduling speaking mm -hmm. events around surgery schedules. So I was like, yeah. okay, 
And even up to, I mean, last year I was going to India and I had to get a neck surgery a week before. I'm like, man, I really don't want to go to India with like 60 <laughs> stitches in my neck because it's kind of like not the cleanest. So I put a delay in my, I had a layover in Amsterdam. So I put a, an overnight delay. I spaced it, I spaced it out. And I literally like landed in Amsterdam, went to my hotel room and pulled like 60 stitches out of my neck in my hotel room and then flew to India the next morning. He's not condoning anybody else. Not condoning somebody to do that. But I was just like, man, I feel like if I could get these stitches out in like a European country, it might be a little cleaner. And then I could land in India with my neck sealed up. <laughs> but so it's been a journey like getting through those that span of surgeries has been a pretty creative way. I remember being in Alaska, we were working with the camp there and I had this big tissue expander in my shoulder and I had to expand on my own. So I basically had like, essentially like kind of like an IV, but you plug these needles into the port that's under the skin and inflate it. And I was like sitting in the woods on a hike in Alaska, pulling out my needles to <laughs> fill up my tissue expander with saline. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't super normal. I realized that. <laughs> um, it sounds like a little unconventional is probably the word I would use. Yeah. So disclaimer, people at home don't like try this. You'd think if you put like thousands of staples in somebody that you'd count how many you put in. So then you could take that many out. But I mean, for the first year, year and a half, we would just be like getting ready for bed. Bobby like, oh shoot, I hate to tell you this, but I see a little silver line here. And I'd like, all right, go sterilize a razor blade or something and cut it out and pull it out. I had staple pullers. And we're pretty much like a mobile ER here to some extent. <laughs> and, and it's like, yeah, things like stitches and staples and stuff that people normally go to doctors for. It's like, I'm not gonna waste a trip for that. So. Save it for the, the hardcore stuff. Yeah. Um, so something that you've talked about is like missions and talking at camps and stuff. Do you guys have any, um, maybe just like one or two stories of like a standout moment of when you were speaking or when you were sharing your testimony that it really had like a major impact on someone? Do you have any cool stories? There was like a kid on Instagram that contacted me about a steam burn from New Zealand. And it's kind of crazy to think how far the reach goes because you feel like, man, I share churches and corporations, but most events I do are closed events. It's not like um, you know, a church obviously invites everybody, but if I'm speaking to a corporation, a lot of times it's just, you know, key leaders or, um, so you just don't think the reach goes as far as it does. And to yeah, have people reach out from other countries, you know, from Africa and New Zealand and, and say, Hey, you know, I just got burnt. I'll get random Facebook. Hey, someone was electrocuted in Tennessee. Can you call the family and things like that, that are really, really cool. There's time, I mean, we went to a camp one time and there was a kid there that had been burned in a fire and he'd lost an arm and a leg. He had a like a knee down amputation and to just have lunch with him and connect. And he's at a regular kids camp kind of feeling alone and different. And to just moments like that are really, really special. It's always the interpersonal ones. It's not really like a big, oh, it's cool. You spoke to 5,000 people. Like it's way cooler to make a difference in one person's life. And I mean, I don't know. It seems like there's been a lot of those. There was a one time I had somebody tag me in a Facebook post and they're like, hey, this guy, he's a police officer in your town. He just got burned. So I'm sitting there and I'm crying and I'm like, man, this family is just starting this journey. And we sat there and we prayed that morning. We yeah. said, God, if there's any way, you know, we can help this family make it happen. And that's a that's a cool story. I. I'd forgot. So that was Chris Cruz, you might have heard of because he was local. So yep. when Chris got burned, 
to just rewind that event I told you about that um, charity event for OMC. The security guard. The the not he wasn't security. He or, was the chief of police that was like running security running security night. for that whole event. He had told me afterwards. He's like, "Hey, can I have your card?" And I was thinking, like, "Okay, you ever give your card to somebody? You're like, there's no way I'll ever get that call." He's like, "Yeah, I run the the SWAT team training for Orlando SWAT. I'd love to have you come speak sometime." I'm like, "Okay, like that's weird. I, I doubt I'm ever gonna get that call actually." So about eight months later, he calls me and said, hey, we're doing this SWAT training and we don't really deal with hostage negotiation. We deal with like some guys in a trailer with a gun to his head or a gun to his wife's head or it's not really like movie stuff. It's more of like talking someone off the ledge in the right direction, you know, to not jump. And he said, so this, he said, I don't know if you'd want to do this, but could you do a three hour training kind of into the psychology of what brought you in the right direction what made you or somebody that could have been suicidal the trauma statistics of people who are burn survivors like me are, are people do struggle with depression suicide and all this stuff so you know what walked you off the ledge in the right direction and and how could we use that when we're dealing with these situations i worked really hard on that really and really just breaking down things like active listening and the way they approach it and the way my nurses approach me and the differences and so that morning I was going to do this SWAT training, which was the most random thing I'd ever done. And I walk out and Bobby's crying and had just been tagged on Facebook that this kid, Chris Cruz had been burnt. And there was already like such a viral following. I mean, there was thousands of comments. So at that time they had the floor he was being treated on had right by the elevators to police officers and they were keeping an officer on duty. Anytime one was in the hospital, they, they keep an officer on duty at all times in their room. So even his roommates couldn't go see him. It was his mom, dad, siblings, and his girlfriend. That was it. His best friends couldn't get to him. And I remember we just sat there and we said, Lord, if there's any way that we can, we know what it's like to go through this journey. If there's any way to be involved in this family's life through their recovery, just open that door. And I was like an hour later, you know, I finished getting dressed. I drive to do this SWAT training. And I was pretty nervous being open about my faith because such a big part of what brought me through was my faith and then the psychological aspects. And when I get done, one of the SWAT people was like, hey, actually, I don't know if you have time, but we, we have an officer from Claremont that was burned. And I think you're, you know, the family could hear using your story. And I'm actually going to do duty on his floor right now. Could you come with me? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. We saw that on Facebook this morning and I would love to meet his family. And when we got to the hospital at the front desk, they're like, oh, he's with us. And the front desk security said, no, it's only family and his girlfriend and officers. And they're like, well, he's with us. So he's deputized. Technically. <laughs> so I walked right through the security that there's no way I could have ever got to and walked up to, you know, Jack and Jill Cruz and, you know, was able to just give them a hug and share my journey and, you know, me and Chris have become friends through it. And I actually ended up officiating him and him and his wife's wedding. And it was like that relationship was so just born out of just God totally blowing that door open. Yeah. And, and it was cool to be able to journey through, you know, not even on the super deep stuff, but even, hey, man, I'm super itchy. You know, the little burn questions that like, it's just nice yeah. to have somebody else to relate to. Yeah. If there's someone struggling right now, and it's actually funny because you kind of said this earlier, I wrote, um, if there's someone struggling right now beneath the weight of their pain, either physical or emotional, 
what is the best encouragement you can offer? It's funny because earlier you talked about internal and external stars. So that, that question kind of goes perfectly. So I, I guess it just, is there anything else you guys would like to add? For sure. I think like perspective is so important. Like we've talked about that. We could ask the why question. We could ask, uh, we could look at, you know, is God fair? That's, that's kind of the big one is like, you know, the fairness of God. That's the question that makes people angry at him and leave the church or stay at the church. And, you know, so I always, I always think, okay, do we serve a fair God? And mm-hmm. my conclusion to that is we don't. And like, don't hang up on me. <laughs> um, but we don't because the Bible says the wages of sin is death and who have sinned all. So fair is a cause and effect. You know, what should happen does happen. And if what should happen did happen, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We don't deserve the life we live. Why is it that the best doctor said not if, when my kidneys fail not is their heart damage but how bad is it not is their brain damage but how bad is it they were sure that they were you know gonna have to remove my arm sure that my uh, my body was gonna shut down and I was gonna die and why were these people wrong again and again and again because we do serve an unfair God and it's not merited it's not deserved it's not that I deserve it more than the next guy but he stepped in and, and says, this is still my world. These are still my people. And, and today he still does do miracles sometimes. And, um, and it's an, you know, he's an unfair God that's crazy about us. And, and he's given us everything to choose to move through our challenges, to choose to include them, to, to choose to, I mean, really turn our obstacles into opportunities and take us from bitter to better. And, and he can use our misery for his ministry. Like that's the God we serve. So perspective is huge of when we're in those situations and we're feeling the weight of it, instead of saying, you know, why did this happen? But like, for me, it was, why is there not a statistic for me surviving something like this? Why do I have such a loving family support system? Why? And there's always positives. And so in the the practical sense of how, what does that look like day to day? I think big picture plays a role of kind of what we're talking about here of like that one day we have this eternal glory that we can big picture use what we're going through to impact people one day. But sometimes that's like, okay, it's good to have that big vision, but that just seems like a mountain that's too big to climb. So then in a small way, small goals are just as or more important. You know, when I was in the hospital, she would kind of keep track of, you know, my, my occupational and physical therapist would keep track of my actual physical angles where my arm dexterity was at. And when I would go through maybe a two week span where I was just in tons of pain and didn't feel like I was making ground, we could open up that journal and say, man, I feel like I haven't gained any ground and I'm just spinning my wheels. But two weeks ago, I couldn't lift my arm above my chest. And now I brush my teeth this morning. And so I am. So what are ways that we can journal? I think journaling to journal your progress uh, uh, and make these small reachable goals. There were mornings when I'd wake up and they had a little whiteboard by my bed and they put on dressing change at nine o'clock occupational at 11 this at, and you know moving my center line and some days that whiteboard was just a mountain that was i couldn't climb it, it i could just fall under the weight of it like all i see is today i'm going to be in tremendous amounts of pain more than i can take and i don't have the spirit or the gumption to you know have a can-do attitude and get it so it was small reachable goals i would actually ignore the rest of the board and say I can't make it through this day, but I think I can make it to 10 o'clock. And I would physically try to put myself in the spot of at 10 o'clock, I'm like getting out of the hospital. Like at 10 o'clock, it's over. 
And I would just say, this is my only focus is get through this next hour or this next thing. And before you know it, you're through a few hours, you're through a few days, you're through a few weeks, a few months. So big goals are great, but small goals are probably more important. Uh, and, and holding on to that perspective of finding goodness in your story. So when I go back to the journal, people, especially who struggle with depression, it, it's like, think of when you were 16, whatever, like, whatever car you wanted. Like, let's say you're, you know, as a guy, I wanted like a Silverado. You know, maybe a girl wants a Volkswagen Bug, but like maybe. I think that's the car we all wanted. I wanted yeah. so bad. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny, like when you're 12, you might've never noticed a Volkswagen bug. And then when you're like, oh, I'm driving, I want one. Now all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one. And they're suddenly everywhere. And you're like, were there always this many? Or your, your brain was filtering, you're constantly filtering stuff. So there, there's not that there's more of the car you want now, but you've made your brain aware of it. And the same thing happens with negative thoughts. And we're like, man, what the heck? I, I never get ahead. I failed another test. I'm just a screw up. I always struggle. My friends barely have to study. And then I asked that girl out and it didn't go so well. And, I, and man, I did. The, and it's like, we start to focus on negative things and then we find those. And that's what we're like, no, I'm not looking for them. I know you're not actively looking for them, but your subconscious is finding them because that's what you're turning your brain on to be aware of. So how do we turn our brain to be aware of the good things in our life? And opening up a journal and writing, what is one good thing today? And tomorrow writing another good thing. And those first few days, you may struggle to find one or two good things. But before you know it, after 30 days, 40 days, you have a couple pages of 30 good things in your life. And when you're having that hard day, just like I would, you can open up that journal and you could say, man, I do have this family. I do have this. I do have this. And before you know it, you start reading that list and you feel pretty great about your day. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the, the medical community is so quick to label and medicate. You know, I work with a lot of veterans and, you know, how often do these guys come home and they get diagnosed with PTSD and then they pump them full in antidepressants and put them la la land or they get home and they don't get help and they self-medicate with alcohol or drugs. And, and it's so sad because we label them as they got PTSD, but we look at what they did. They went overseas and maybe they saw things or did things that they weren't prepared for. They never imagined and they can't get that image out of their head. And now they come home and they're kind of in this dynamic where not only do they not feel okay, but everyone's putting them on a pedestal and saying they're a hero. So now it's like, well, how do I now say, not only do I not feel like a hero, but I'm not even okay. So what do we do? We, we bottle up and we keep it in and you don't talk about it for five or 10 years. And then somebody brings up Iraq or a fireworks goes off and you're back there and you hit the ground and you know, suddenly, okay, well now just, they need treatment. It's like, no, 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 they need to process the trauma they went through. So, so much of it is to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And we're not meant to bottle. And the world will paint this picture that bottling is strength. Like if you look at like any movie, look at the, the hero. The hero is the guy where everything is falling apart around him and he can be stone-faced and he's like, got the girl by his side and he's like rescuing everybody. But we, we create what's easiest. That's actually the easiest path like you'll never hear a marriage counselor be like man the problem with this couple is the guy just shares his feelings too much and he communicates too much <laughs> like that's not going to be like like our natural instinct is to protect ourselves and to not let people in so it's funny that we paint that as the image of strength because we we paint what's easiest 
and actually we look at jesus the true hero the manliest man he who who comes down to earth takes on the flesh and like we said earlier jesus wept he was vulnerable he allowed people in and he was slow to speak and quick to listen and 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 he he could he could share his the weight of his pain and you know he's in the garden before the cross having his friends pray with him through his challenges and so what does it look like to let people into your challenges and i know it's scary because you say well i've let people in and they've used it for gossip and hurt me so who are the people that you can trust and it could be a counselor or a trusted friend who has the character traits that are not going to hurt you that are a safe place and to say hey i'm not okay and here's some stuff I'm going through and, and I need help. And what does that look like? And I think as we share our journeys, that is the ultimate antidote. That is what produces a step towards healing. And we go to these wounded warrior events and, and I do them out on the water. We take them wake surfing. And it, it's a great way. The first time it happened, I thought it was this like super special, unique thing, but then it kept happening. And I realized it's almost a formula that those guys are not going to go sit around with a psychologist and talk they don't even want to talk to their friends because their friends and the public doesn't understand what it's like over there. So you put them in a boat and you're like, this isn't psychology lessons. This is, we're going out to have a fun day on the lake and just remind you life can be fun. And they get in a boat with six other guys who've been there and it starts as super good old boy, sarcastic, just like you would at any fire station or police station. And before you know it, one of them's like, Hey, I want to talk about when, I lost my leg because they realize this is a place where everyone's been there. Everyone understands everyone's gone through it. And another one opens up another one. And all of a sudden you see them take a step towards healing and share things they haven't talked about in 10 years. And, and so how do we put ourselves in that if we're struggling under the weight of, okay, I have stuff I need to process. I need to recognize these things that have damaged me. And how do I get a safe environment where I can, have people journey with me. Yeah, no, that's really good. Um, I definitely, one thing I always say, even in the Christian world, per se, you know, the Christian world, I'm doing air quotes, like yeah. all Christians, I guess I should say, is that counseling has such a negative stigma. Mm-hmm. Like you said, it's just finding, finding someone you trust, or if not, then seeking professional help of, you know, hey, I'm not doing okay right now. Cause that, that's a scary thing of like, you're just opening up and you never know how you're gonna be judged, friends or whatever. So no, that, that's good. I think more people, more people could benefit from counseling if they would just put the walls down and just do it. Just yeah. do it. And, and not to let it, you know, there's so much wisdom in what you're saying because it's not even when things are to the point where they're so bad that you're like aware that you need it. You know, we're like really passionate about marriage and our marriage story because we've seen so many times, you know, people say this is, when I said for better or for worse, this is way worse than I ever thought. And they just check out. And so many times trauma tears your relationships apart but for us we feel closer than we did on our honeymoon like we're more in love now and so much of that is because we've seen each other at every we know each other so well (laughs) in every every area of life so when I think of marriage like man we have a great marriage so you think okay should you get marriage counseling or go to a marriage retreat it's like well we're doing awesome But there was times where we thought we're doing awesome and we didn't know it could be as good as it is now because of what we've gone through through our trauma. So, you know, what does it look like to say, hey, we have a great marriage. Let's go to a marriage retreat. That sounds fun. Hey, we have a great marriage. Let's go talk to a counselor and talk about how great it is. And we'll find that, man, we can even find ways to communicate even better. Like you don't have to be having major problems. Like sometimes it's just, it's good to be able to do life together and have community. So 
whether, like you said, whether it is counseling or professional help or trusted friend or other couples to be able to say like, hey, here's the journey we're on right now and it's going awesome. What's your journey like? And how do we, you, you know, you can always learn, you can always grow. And it goes back to that neutral illusion of, you know, just because things are good now, are you dying or are you growing? And what does seeking growth look like? Yep, that's awesome. Well, Bobby Jean, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel very blessed, but also I want to acknowledge that Matt put the work in. Like, I feel blessed that he is doing so well and stuff like that because we did get a miracle in a lot of ways but he also did put the work in. He was at physical and occupational therapy where they were cranking on him until he would bleed. And then they're like, okay, we'll do more tomorrow. And he kept continuing to choose to do the hard work. And that has literally shaped the way that he's been able to just, this is a physical thing, but to be able to move, to be able to work, to be able to do the things that he wants to do in his life and to be able to be so active with our three boys now and things so the ripple effects of the work that you do there it's not going to ever be not worth it the ripple effects of the work and doing the hard things are so important and i can see that in not just the physical ways but in all of the intangible ways of doing the hard work and so it i know this year has been hard for people and there's it just seems like more hard more hard more hard but if you kind of like how you said where your friend was overtaken by that and blame others and things like that, if you do succumb to that, the ripple effects are going to be bad. But if you just say, okay, you know what, it will always be worth it to do the work. Mm-hmm. We, we are very blessed and we have a really great life and a lot of it is choosing to do the hard things. So you can do it. <laughs> yeah, there's a... There's a small documentary coming out on our story with a small group curriculum that goes along. It's a six weeks, six week uh, curriculum to learn your story. So the whole premise is like, yeah, you're, you're hearing our story, but the curriculum is not about us. It's about you. The story is not about me. It's about you discovering your journey. And the hope is at the end of six weeks, everyone in your small group knows how to tangibly share their story. And there's one week where the subject is committing to being stretched. And it's that idea of, I've had burn survivors walk up to me with way less severe burns that are still, don't have the dexterity or the movement. And they're like, man, it's so lucky you can move the way you can. And kind of like she said, it's, you know, it's, it's not luck. It was, and they go, well, I went to physical therapy. Well, physical therapy is where you learn your exercises. The real work happens in the thousands of hours you put in at home. You know, like this spot in my arm, this scar used to go straight across here and the reason there's regular skin here is because literally it was locked at 90 degrees we'd stretch it until it would open and bleed and stretch it until it would bleed and did that every day for a year and it would just heal wider and heal wider and heal wider and it was horrible it felt like i was on like a medieval torture machine but it was knowing if i ever wanted to do this i had to do that and um and a lot of people want to be where you are but are they willing to do what you've done so what does that look like in your life to committing to being stretched and saying this hurts, but that's not a bad thing because if I ever want to be able to talk about my daughter, I might have to bring it up on a podcast 20 times. And I mean, with our story, the first time I spoke on stage, I cried through the whole thing. And then the 10th time I cried five times, the, you know, the hundredth time I teared up a little bit. And it's like, the more we, you know, if we want to get to the point where we can be comfortable 
we, we have to put the time in and it's not easy. Yeah. And you know, like you said about 2020, Bobby, it's been, it's been a hard year for people. And, you know, we don't want to, you never want people to feel like, make them feel guilty about their situation. Because I'll have people tell me all the time, like, oh, I've been through, well, nothing like you. And they'll always preface it like that. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. Like, if you just broke your leg, and that's the biggest struggle you've ever had, and I'm on my 77th surgery, and that's the yeah. biggest struggle I've had, like, we're both journeying through our biggest struggle. So don't take away or belittle yours. Like, like you broke your leg, and you can't drive, and you need to get rides for work, and finances are tight. And that could be that's huge. That can be way bigger than me going through whatever surgery I'm going through. So 2020 has been really rough on people. And a lot of people don't do well with working from home and don't do well with isolation and don't do well with being alone and have lost their jobs and, you know, are struggling in their marriages because of the, the isolation time. And it's like, don't take away from what you've been through and in the midst of what you've been through, find the goodness in that story, find help, find peace and joy and find the good i'm a public speaker obviously i haven't been working a ton <laughs> like <laughs> 2020 hit and i went from doing at a minimum 50 events a year to you know this year i've done four five mm -hmm. so part of what we looked at going into it and finding that goodness in a practical way like okay obviously i'm not gonna be working as much but I studied psychology at school and theology, psychology, double major when I started. And I took a class called Death and Dying, which sounds super exciting, but we actually, we got to read and, and, and view these kind of manuscripts of people that were the last words they had in hospital beds and stuff. And what you realize is that it's never, I wish I would have worked a little more. I wish I had that promotion. It's always relational. I wish I had more time with my kids. I wish I had taken more time for this. I wish I got to tell this person what I really, how I really felt. And so when 2020 hit, it was like, okay, Financially, that might mean some different things in our budget and our lifestyle, but rather than living in fear of the implications in the physical world, let's focus on the fact that everybody talks about how they wish they had more time. And it's in their retirement years where they're like, I wish I could have taken time like this then. Well, we all got that. We all got a four month retirement or six month retirement to say, okay, well, I don't know how we might have to sell a vehicle. We might have to, you know, put ourselves in a little bit of debt, like we're financially and physically struggling, but I'm sitting at home with my family getting time I've never got before. So what are the positives of that? And that's what we did. We kind of enjoyed quarantine. Like we, you know, went and swam with the kids, played in the lake. We played in the yard, we played Frisbee. We, and we had a lot, lot of, lot of fun through it. And were there stresses that came with that as well that I could have focused on? Yeah. But man, there was a lot of blessings and, and I wouldn't trade it. It was, it was awesome for us, but it was, again, going back to what you said, you kind of choose it. You choose to make it awesome. It's not like, oh, I got lucky. 2020 was less hard for me than it was for you. Like, no, you and me and everybody could choose to make it what it is. Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you both so much for just being so open and honest and, you know, kind of just sharing your hearts with us. If people really connected with you and they want to maybe get more information about your study and all the ministry and stuff that you guys are doing, how can they get in touch with you? What would be the best way? So our website is beyondtheburn.life, instead but I'm mostly active on like Instagram. I mean, if somebody wants to reach out or ask any questions, we're an open book, like shoot me a message and we can talk and, mm -hmm. you know, have coffee sometime. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, you know, always feel free to reach out. And then 
the study is it's being done through a ministry called This Is My Story. So it'll, it'll be on their site, thismystory.org. Um, a lot of churches use Right Now Media for their small group curriculum. It's going to be on Right Now Media. And then I'll probably make it available on my site as well. That's awesome. I cannot wait. I love small groups. That's like one of my favorite things because I feel like um, sometimes in big groups, people just kind of sit there and they're like, yep, yeah, everything's fine. But if you have a smaller group, they're more willing to actually open up and kind of share struggles. So I, I love small group studies. So I'm very excited. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll let you know. It's, out, it's called Scarred for Good, and it's off the idea that we all have scars, and yeah. we're all scarred for good, and we all have an incredible story in, in discovering that. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Encourageous Podcast. I hope today's story left you feeling encouraged and inspired. Come back every other Thursday for a new episode and be sure to subscribe. Your support makes a world of a difference, especially for a new and bi-weekly podcast like this one. If you want to connect with me on social, you can find me on both Instagram and Facebook at The Encourageous Podcast. Until next time, stay encourageous. Encourageous.